everyone, this is Des and you are listening to The Wellness Project powered by Spotlight Coalition. Today I speak with Michelle Reidinger. She talks to me about being diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 1998 and spending the next 12 years on a roller coaster of manic and depressive episodes. She discusses her journey with therapists, doctors, medications, hospitalizations, and trigger warning for this episode, she does discuss her suicide attempts. But she does not go into detail about those attempts, but she does mention them. She talks about how she really struggled by the toll it took on her family and what finally drove her to get help. And she talks about taking responsibility and getting control over her mental health illness. Michelle is so well-spoken. Her story is so powerful. I could have listened to her talk for hours. I think you're going to feel the same way. I was totally wrapped up in her story and hanging on every word. She really strives to help people become aware and understanding of mental illnesses and in particular bipolar disorder. So the work she's doing is extremely important. I think you're really going to find a lot of value out of this episode, especially if you're someone that struggles with bipolar disorder or if you know someone with bipolar disorder. But I think this episode is also important for anybody that struggles with mental illness because Michelle talks a lot about her journey into healing and getting better, her self-care regimen, things of that nature. And I think that part of the podcast is going to be helpful for everybody no matter who is listening all right so let's talk with michelle everyone i am here with michelle reidinger michelle thank you so much for joining me today thanks so much for having me i'm really looking forward to speaking with you so as for an introduction can you tell us about your struggles with mental health and how you got to where you are today absolutely uh so i was diagnosed in college uh one month before i graduated from college leading up to that for a few years, I had been having increasing uh, occurrences of mood cycles that were getting more and more severe. And I think for probably at least the last year prior to being diagnosed, I, I was starting to suspect that there was something wrong, but I really believed that it was a moral defect on my part. I just, you know, I kept buying self-help books and, and trying to fix myself, but it got to a point where it was becoming increasingly obvious that there was something wrong with me. You know, thankfully, at the off and on during college, I had lived with an aunt and uncle who started recognizing that there was something wrong. And my parents knew that there was something wrong because I, so my manic and depressive episodes would manifest with me making huge life-changing decisions. And I would be really animated and excited and talking to everybody. And I would talk to my parents every day about it, about my new plan and everything. And then when I would crash into depression, I would just stop talking to everybody. And so my parents got really concerned and talked to my aunt and uncle and they spoke to me. And at first I was kind of resistant to it, but then I, I agreed to go uh, see a psychiatrist. And when I was initially diagnosed, I was misdiagnosed. I was severely depressed when I went in. I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorder and they put me on an antidepressant. And anybody knows anything about, about bipolar, if you put a uh, bipolar, somebody with bipolar on it, antidepressant without a mood stabilizer, it'll cause mania, which is what happened with me. One of the things that the doctor told me when I was first diagnosed that I kind of latched onto was, was he assured me that all I needed to do was find the right combination of medications and I would be fine. And so I believed that and I aggressively sought treatment for the following decade um, taking anything that the doctor would prescribe to me. I, you know, moved a few times. And so I would see different doctors and every time the diagnosis was reaffirmed, but medication just was not working for me. 
I had terrible side effects with a lot of the medications that made them intolerable. You know, whenever I would get on medication, sometimes I would have bad reactions to them um, and nothing seemed to be working. I continued to cycle and continued to get worse and it just got worse and worse and worse. And then, so I was initially diagnosed in 1998. By 2008, I was hospitalized multiple times. I had a, you might want to put a trigger warning at the beginning of this. I did make uh, two attempts during that year. They also did uh, one of the hospitalizations, they did a full course of electroconvulsive therapy on me, which is some people call it shock treatment. Um, and that caused me to lose a lot of my memory from that time. And so it just was, I got to a point where I just felt like there was no hope for any kind of normal life for me. You know, I had really been trying hard to, to figure out how to live well and live a balanced life with it. And I, I just couldn't do it. But the thing that kind of changed things for me was um, when I came home from one of my hospitalizations, I was looking at my little girl who was four years old at the time. And it dawned on me that if I was successful in taking my life, that she would blame herself and that I was going to ruin her life if I did that to myself. And from that point on, I decided that if the only thing that I could do was survive, I would do that for my daughter. I loved her too much to, to ruin her life. And so I would, I would spend the rest of my life just surviving if that's what I needed to do for her. And so that was the first thing, the first step towards learning how to live well with this was just committing to not ever allowing myself to ever consider suicide as an option again. About two years later, uh, my doctor and I actually found a supplement that was specifically designed for people with bipolar disorder. When I started taking it, it was the first time that I found anything that, that worked for me. And I remember after about two months of being on it, I woke up one morning feeling like it was the first time I'd been awake in, in a decade. Um, and that was what I needed to be able to start putting together the rest of the tools that have helped me to learn how to live a healthy and balanced and productive life with bipolar disorder. And over the last 10 years, I've been gradually kind of piecing together all the different tools that I need. It's taken some time to figure out some things, but, but I rarely cycle now. I don't remember the last time I had a manic episode. My husband and I were actually talking about one day and I said, I don't remember the last time I was manic. Like, I just can't remember it. When I do have, you know, depressive episodes are very slight and I know how to manage them now so that they don't last very long. They don't get really bad anymore. And I'm able to recover from them really quickly. And so I started my blog about, I guess it's been a year now, a year ago, because it took me a long time to figure out all the pieces that I needed to put together. And I wanted to help other people figure it out faster. You know, I didn't want it, this to take this long for other moms, especially who were trying to care for their families and wanted some hope. I'm really thankful for mental health professionals. I, I advocate people continue to see psychiatrists and counselors and that. But one of the problems that I found in mental health care is that there seems to be no cohesive plan uh, for helping people figure out how to live balanced lives, and at least my, not in my experience. I shouldn't say there isn't in, any out there, but in my experience, and I've lived in six states and had lots of doctors, and, and I haven't ever encountered a scenario where, you know, because you see a, a psychiatrist, you know, your initial visit might be, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, but after that, you maybe see them once every two months for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and that's it. And that's just for med medication management. And if you see a counselor, that's a completely separate thing. All of their diagnoses are based on what you can give them. For somebody who has you know, a mental health disorder, that can be a problem because you, a lot of things that seem normal to you aren't normal. Yeah, so that's why I, one of the reasons why I wanted to try and share my experiences with people is because 
I want to help them learn how to, how to live well with it and recognize that you can live well. You know, I think a lot of people just feel like they're going to be sick for the rest of their lives. And that's, that's not necessary. You don't have to live that way. Wow. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's a really, really powerful story. And I, I agree. I think it's so important to share your story because I'm sure, like you said, a lot of people can identify with what you're saying and probably had, unfortunately, the same experiences with doctors and treatment plans and things like that. So I want to jump back a little bit and go back to the beginning. So you said you were actually misdiagnosed, which I think that's super, super common, unfortunately. So how old were you when you were diagnosed with depressive disorder and anxiety? I was uh, just shy of my 24th birthday. So I was, it was right before I turned 24. Okay. And then when did you finally get an accurate diagnosis of bipolar disorder? It was only a couple months later. It didn't take long for the antidepressant to cause a a major manic episode pretty shortly after that, that they realized they'd made a mistake. And what were your earliest memories of, you said that you knew something was wrong, but how did you know something was wrong? And what were your earliest memories of something being off or different? Well, interestingly, once I understood what the disorder looked like, I can actually go back and see symptoms of it when I was in high school. By the time I was diagnosed, it was pretty severe. And I think that people are starting to recognize this more and more that somebody will manifest with kind of slight symptoms or or more mild symptoms of the disorder younger, but because teenagers tend to be naturally kind of uh, emotional in that, it's hard to identify that it's not normal emotional changes. It's it's actually a, a mental health disorder. I can go back and identify, I got manic at the beginning of every school year and it would last for about two months. And then I would crash and get depressed. And, and back at the, in that time, I thought I was, I'm, I'm religious. And so I thought I was, I felt like I was sinning. I felt like I felt bad because I was, I was doing something wrong. And so I would kind of beat myself up. So that kind of became a pattern for me. I'm the oldest in my family and there's actually mental illness on both sides of the family, but because it was an older generation and nobody talked about it nobody recognized that I was actually dealing with a mental illness. And that's one of the other reasons why I'm super open about this is because I feel like if people were more open about it and there was not shame associated with diagnosis, that more people would get diagnosed and more people would get help. When I was in college, my manic episodes, I was actually manifesting with hypomania. There's a difference between full-blown mania and hypomania. So I was initially diagnosed with bipolar disorder too. Um, because I didn't have any psychotic episodes. I didn't have some of the earmarkings of a bipolar one that changed later on. But when I first was manifesting with uh, the symptoms, my hypomania would, would look like me changing my major. And it wasn't like little changes. And it wasn't like a normal kid who was trying to figure things out. I went from uh, thinking I wanted to learn Russian and move to Russia and I was going to join this foreign service. And I I had no association with that at all, except it just popped into my head one day. And so I changed all my classes and I told everybody about it. And then after a few weeks, I crashed and got depressed and I, you know, I was able to go to class and to, and to work and I wouldn't see anybody. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I felt terrible inside. It felt dark. I felt like there was darkness around me. When I started to get manic again, I decided I needed to change my major to math and I was going to be a math teacher and I was going to be you know, get a PhD in math. One of the times I got manic, I changed schools. Like I just all of a sudden decided I was at the wrong school and I needed to change, you know, universities. My parents didn't, you know, I was so convincing in the way that I, that I spoke that it didn't occur to them at first that there was anything wrong. 
you know, my mind would race and it would be going a million miles a minute. And, and I would, you know, talk really fast and really animated and, and really excited. And I was so convincing that they didn't recognize at first that this was not healthy, what was happening to me. And it felt out of control. Like I started to feel kind of out of control and I, I kept trying to establish boundaries for myself, set rules for myself. And like I said, I was buying self-help. I had a whole bunch of self-help books, like uh, Stephen Covey's seven habits for highly effective people. And I can't remember all of them, but I kept buying self-help books because I was trying to figure out how to fix myself because I just kept feeling like this was a self-discipline problem that I was becoming really ashamed of myself when I would get depressed and I would fail. And then in my mind, I was failing at, at what I had set out to do. And then I would change my course. Each time that would happen, I would start feeling really embarrassed, but I was sure that this time it was the right thing to do. And so I would, I would, and it was like compulsive. Like I couldn't stop talking to people about what was, what I was thinking. Like I just, it was like verbal vomit. Every time I would start to have an inkling in the back of my head, like there's something wrong with me. I, this isn't normal. I would feel like I was making excuses for myself. And so every time I started thinking there's something wrong, I, I would think, no, you're just making excuses for yourself. You just need to be more self-disciplined. You just need to, you know, and, and so I think the thing that helped me was having uh, my aunt and uncle and my parents talk to me and they were very loving in the way they approached me about it. And it, and it took about a month of them talking to me before I actually agreed to do it because part of me was afraid of getting diagnosed. Like I, I didn't want to be broken in my mind, a diagnosis with a mental health disorder was going to be saying that I was broken. And I didn't want to be told that I was broken. My last manic episode, right before the crash that I had, when I was seeing the, the psychiatrist, I was up for three days straight. I didn't have any sleep. I was on the Dean's list my senior year in college because I would miss a whole bunch of class, but I was taking these upper level classes where the entire grade depended on one test or one paper or something. And so I would miss like weeks of class and then get manic right before the end. And I get manic and write the paper, stay up all night writing. I, I wrote a 25 page research paper in two days with no sleep. And I was so sick afterwards. Like I started feeling kind of sick when you get manic, you will get depressed afterwards because your brain goes into overdrive. It's not healthy. And when I crashed afterwards, that was when I'm like, something's wrong with me. I need help. And that's when I have finally agreed to go to the doctor. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. And so I know that you mentioned that, you know, when you were talking to your parents, you were very convincing and enthusiastic in the way you spoke. And so they didn't really recognize anything was really wrong. So at what point did your family, your aunt and uncle and your parents realize that there was something off and that you needed help? One of the things that was, was a huge blessing was that I actually worked for my uncle for a little while. He had a medical research and development company. I was an assistant there. And when I would get depressed, I would make lists of really tedious tasks for myself to do. They were things that weren't really productive, but I was trying to keep myself doing something. And then when I would get manic, I would get these really big ideas. You know, I would have these really big ideas and these really big projects that I would want to work on. My uncle was the very first one that actually started recognizing that there was something wrong. He could see patterns in my behavior. And he was the one who mentioned it to my aunt. He's, he was my uncle by marriage. And I think he was a little hesitant to, you know, say something to me directly. So he mentioned it to my aunt and she was the one who started talking to my parents about it. Once they started observing it, they started becoming more conscious of the patterns they were seeing, you know, and, and I think also it took a little longer for my parents to recognize it because they were out of state. They weren't near me. And I also think that my behavior, even though it was 
significantly more intense, it was still kind of following the same pattern that they'd seen with me growing up. It was just a more intensified version of what they had seen when I was younger. I think that the fact that my aunt and uncle were near me and my uncle was observing me at work, then they all started kind of watching me and started noticing that there was something off, that it wasn't, that this wasn't normal behavior. Okay. Gotcha. And did they know about bipolar disorder? Were there any whispers or mentions of bipolar disorder, or they just knew this behavior is off a bit? Well, I don't think that they necessarily suspected that I had bipolar disorder specifically. I just think that they knew that there was something wrong. My uncle, his mother had schizophrenia. So he had seen, you know, mental illness in his family. My aunt was a, an RN. And so she had seen mental illness in her work. Um, and like I said, my, my father had grown up with a mother who had a chemical imbalance, but it wasn't something that anybody really talked about. And so I think he was, he had seen it growing up, but I don't think it was something that was, that he knew a lot about because it wasn't discussed. If that makes sense. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. So can you talk a little bit about how they approached you? You said they approached you in a very loving and supportive way. Can you explain that? Because I think some family members, some loved ones don't really know how to approach it. Don't really know what to say. Don't want to offend the person. I mean, you're going to someone saying, we think something's wrong with you, you know? So how can somebody go to someone in an understanding, empathetic, supportive way? Well, the first thing is I would never approach somebody when they were manic. Somebody who's manic is not going to be open to hearing what you have to say, partly because I think, I think that we like mania. Mania feels better than depression. And you're so used to the two extremes that, that mania, nobody ever wants to be told that, that there's something wrong. I think that when somebody's either in a, in a normal state, depressive episodes too, it's kind of tricky. <laughs> um, <laughs> But depressive episodes, I think somebody would be more open to hearing that maybe, you know, and, and the way that my parents approached me, my father and I had a really close relationship, a really good relationship. I mean, my dad had always been very understanding about, you know, challenges that I was facing in that. And so my dad was the one who talked to me about it initially. And he, he just kind of asked me some questions. He asked me, you know, how I was doing. And I think the way that he was approaching it was asking me questions to kind of help me see that there was something wrong not in any kind of accusatory way, um, but just saying, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, that we'll hear from you a lot, you know, for a while, and then we won't hear from you. And why do you think that is, you know, can you think about, you know, so he kind of asked me questions rather than just telling me that there's something wrong. And like I said, I wasn't very open to it initially. Part of me wanted to listen to him, but part of me was, I had conditioned myself so much to believe that this was a moral failing on my part. I didn't believe that there was something wrong. It felt like making excuses. And the other side of it, like I said, was I felt like I was being told that I was broken and that's really hard to hear. You know, nobody wants to be told that. I think when somebody's approaching somebody, someone that they love about it, it's really important. Number one, like I said, do not approach them when they're manic. If, if you think somebody might have bipolar disorder, don't approach them when they're manic, but just ask them questions and say, you know, I've noticed that you're, you seem like you're struggling a bit. Is there something I can do to help or phrase it in a way that you're trying to help rather than phrasing it like, I think there's something wrong with you. You know what I mean? Because one is showing compassion and wanting to help. And the other makes you feel like you're broken and, and you need to be fixed. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate those tips. Thank you. I think those are going to be really helpful for people. Like I said, I think people don't really know 
how to approach the situation, how to approach the person. And so I think that's really helpful for people to hear. Can you speak a little bit to how bipolar disorder affected your relationships with your family, romantic relationships, relationships with your children? The relationships with my family, I don't know that I don't I don't know that it necessarily initially um, impacted them very much because it was so normal for my family to see me that way. But romantic relationships, for sure, I really struggled with dating. One of the things that is really challenging for somebody with bipolar disorder is it's very easy to end up in abusive relationships. Before I got diagnosed, actually, I was married and it was an abusive marriage. It was very easy for me to feel like it was my fault because mental illness can cause you to feel bad about yourself. It causes you to kind of struggle with self-esteem. And so it's very easy for somebody to convince you that you're, that you don't have value and it can make you feel like they're always helping you. And they're always, you know, and so it's very easy for you to feel like an inferior in the relationship with my husband. One of the challenges that we had in our relationship. So interestingly, my husband and I dated long distance. Initially, we met online not something I necessarily recommend. I think I got <laughs> kind of lucky because I, I had a couple of guys that I met online that were, one of them was actually a predator. It was a very scary situation, but, but with my husband, it's interesting because I could see myself get manic in the relationship through these emails. We had, I have a whole binder full of emails from our courtship and I could see that it causes anxiety sometimes for me to read through the emails because I can see when I started to get manic. And I, I remember thinking like, why did he stick around? I was obvious, obviously like not stable. Thankfully he, he stuck around. It really was challenging, especially when I got to the point in 2008, when, when I got hospitalized multiple times and I, I made this suicide attempt because my husband kind of shut down at that point. Um, and I don't blame him. I wouldn't have blamed him if he left actually, because it was so scary for him to have no idea how to help me. And to see me in that much pain and to see me so out of control that year, I was my manic, I I had my first psychotic episode that year had to be physically restrained. You know, it was just really scary for him. He kind of got to a point where he just kind of shut down emotionally and it wasn't a conscious choice. It was just his body and his mind trying to protect itself. Thankfully, uh, in the last couple of years, he's been ready to go to counseling so that we can he, he's been a good partner. He's been a wonderful partner, but there was a, there was kind of an emotional barrier between us for several years after that, because he just kind of disconnected in some ways. Going to counseling for us was really important so that we could heal the relationship. I was going to counseling and I was doing the work to get myself well, but we needed to heal the relationship as well. And the same was true with my children. It can be really hard for children to have a parent with mental illness or mental health disorder because um, it creates instability and children really need stability. One of the things that I did proactively, once I started getting well myself, I put my older two children who were quite young when I, you know, I had my, my son was two and my daughter was four when I was hospitalized multiple times, just this last couple of years, I put them in counseling, uh, because I thought, I think they've, you know, they've experienced a lot of trauma and I want to make sure that I give them the tools necessary to help them heal from that trauma. And it's been really important for me with my counseling to learn healthy boundaries, you know, to create not healthy boundaries for myself, but also to acknowledge healthy boundaries for my children. I think that's one of the things that people who have mental health disorders struggle with is understanding healthy boundaries. Before we're diagnosed and when we're first diagnosed and trying to figure things out, we don't really have control over what's going on in our minds um, and we're suffering a lot. And so 
understanding and, and creating healthy boundaries is kind of out of our wheelhouse. Like we just don't know how to do that. And so that was one of the things that was really important. I, I strongly advocate for therapy. Uh, I strongly advocate for that. I don't think that if you have a mental illness, that it's possible to live well with it without, without therapy, because a mental illness affects your, the way that you see the world, the way they experience the world. Um, you develop unhealthy thought and behavior patterns. Um, a lot of us have experienced trauma. Like I said, you have to learn what healthy boundaries look like and how to set them and respect them as well. And so I feel like counseling is essential to learning how to live a healthy life with it. And it's also really important for you to help your, your husband and your children or your partner counseling, I think is, is really important for the relationship in order for it to be a healthy relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Would you mind sharing what you and your husband, um, what techniques helped your relationship from going to therapy together? There's a book called hold me tight. It's a type of therapy. If you look up the book, hold me tight conversations, I think is what it's called. It's a, it's a book that talks about, you know, how to create healthy bonds and relationships and healthy boundaries in that. And we actually looked for a therapist that did that kind of therapy. When you have one partner who has a mental health disorder, it's kind of like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, I'm, I'm a very vocal person in, in the first place. I'm, I have no problem talking about my emotions and my feelings and that kind of thing. I've always been that way. Uh, my husband, on the other hand, is quite introverted. He has a hard time. And I think that might be true for a lot of men. You know, I think that, that a lot of men have a hard time figuring out what their feelings are. In our relationship, his needs and his feelings and that had been completely subverted by my needs because my needs were so intense and so big. And it wasn't something either of us consciously did. It just, it just happened. And so it was really important for us to learn first of all, for him to learn how to express his needs and how to feel okay expressing his needs and, and talk about how he was feeling about things. And, and for me to learn how to hear, you know, how to hear him and how to give him space for that. And one of the most important pieces to making sure that my husband and I had a healthy relationship and my children and I have a healthy relationship is me accepting responsibility for my disorder. For a long time, I would go through periods of time where I was very angry that I had this disorder. And that was for a lot of reasons, you know, the medication wasn't working or having, you know, really bad side effects. And it would make me feel resentful of having to take medication when I was cycling and I was, you know, things were out of control. I felt angry that I had to struggle so much. And there were a lot of times when I was just like, fine, if I have to suffer, everybody else has to suffer, which is a really counterproductive way to <laughs> approach life because the result is everybody suffers, you know, and it wasn't that I wasn't trying to live well before, but I was just kind of, it was just mostly focused on trying to take medication and it wasn't working. And I allowed myself the idea of taking my life. And when I looked at my daughter that day and realized that I would ruin her life, if I did that, that was my first, the first time that I decided I have to accept responsibility for myself. I have to figure out how to live well with this. And I call it choosing your hard, you know, that I chose my heart that day. My, my life was already hard, but I chose the heart that led to healing. I was willing to do the work, whatever work was necessary to learn how to be healthy with my disorder. I use that all the time. You know, it's not easy living well with this disorder. It takes conscious effort every single day. You know, I have a very rigid self-care regimen that I do every single morning. I go to therapy and therapy is not easy. 
it's a really hard thing to do because you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to be willing to look at yourself and recognize that you have things that need to be fixed, you know, but the healing that comes from those things is extraordinary. And so the, the reward on the other end of it is so worth the effort. It's so worth choosing that path and choosing that hard. Oh, absolutely. And there's so much I want to get into here. So I know you mentioned before that you dealt with a lot of shame and self-esteem issues. And can you just talk about your healing process, like after your attempts and realizing that you needed to choose your heart, what steps did you take to heal yourself, to get better? What kind of work did you put in? How did you get over that shame and work on your self-esteem and, and your self-worth? And can you also share your self-care regimen with us? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So it's a gradual process. So self-esteem feelings of self-worth and value come from accepting responsibility for yourself. That's the thing that I've recognized over the years is that the shame and embarrassment that I felt was feeling like I had no control. I felt like I was a prisoner in my own mind. I felt like my brain was in charge and it was out of control and I was just along for the ride. And so I didn't feel like I had any ability to affect real change in my life. And so the first step was accepting that I had to do something about it, you know, that I, that I was responsible for myself. And, and at the beginning, it was just, and at the beginning, it was about my children. You know, I was doing this for my kids and I was doing it for my husband. As I started finding the pieces, as I found each piece to, I call it my wellness puzzle, I started gaining more confidence in myself. And as, as I started to feel better myself, I started wanting to live well for myself. I started recognizing I had value and I had purpose in my life and that I was worth working for. It wasn't just about my children and my husband anymore. It was about me accepting responsibility for myself and taking the steps necessary to live well started helping me to feel better. You know, one of the pieces that really helped me was after, you know, the supplements, you have to have something to help balance your brain chemistry. I do not advocate people go off of their medications. For some people, medication is the answer. For me, it was a, you know, the specialized supplement was the answer, but your brain needs something to be balanced. You know, the, a chemical imbalance is an imbalance in your brain. And so it needs something. It needs something kind of like somebody with diabetes. You have to have, you know, insulin and sugar to balance out your blood sugar. That's the same thing with the chemical imbalance. Like your brain chemistry is out of balance. And so the emotions are, are kind of out of control. And so you have to give it what it needs to balance out. When I started exercising, it was a huge, it made a huge difference. And it took some time for me to understand how to exercise for mental health because I was a competitive athlete in high school and college. And so I approached exercise from a competitive standpoint. So I started training for, you know, triathlons. I was actually causing manic cycles for myself or manic episodes for myself. It would cause me to get into a hypomanic state when I was training. And then I would crash afterwards. It took me doing this a few times to recognize what I was doing. And so I had to stop and I had to look at it and think, okay, this isn't, this isn't healthy. I don't want to cause cycles. And so I had to learn how to exercise for my mental health instead of for training. And so I don't train for events anymore. I stopped doing that. I learned how to practice mindfulness meditation. That was a huge, I think everybody should practice mindfulness meditation. The thing that's amazing about it is that I feel like a lot of times we feel like victims in our heads, even people who don't have mental health disorders. I've talked to people that, that have expressed the same things because most people have weird thoughts pop into your head. You'll have a weird idea or a weird thought kind of cross your mind. And you're like, Ugh, I don't like that thought. Well, when you have a mental illness or a mental health disorder, it's like 
rapid fire. You'll have tons and tons of intrusive thoughts that are just beating you up. And you feel like a bad person because you're thinking, this is me. These thoughts are me. And I'm a bad person because I'm having these really bad thoughts. Mindfulness meditation was life-changing for me because it taught me how to separate myself from my thoughts, that I am not the thoughts that come into my head and that I can choose whether or not to engage with those thoughts that had never occurred to me. I didn't realize that that was even an option. And so it was really hard for me at first to, to learn how to practice mindfulness because I was so used to, I had developed some really um, unhealthy coping skills. I would intentionally cause myself to daydream because I didn't want to be in my own head. And so I would make myself daydream and it became a habit. And so I would, I would be sitting, talking to somebody and not even hear what they were saying because I was off somewhere else in my head, learning how to practice mindfulness, totally changed things for me. Each time I would learn a new tool and it would take time. Like the first time I would practice the tool exercise, for example, you know, I, I did it and it helped, but it wasn't quite the right way to do it, you know? And so I'd have to try again, you know, if I would get manic and then depressed, then I would stop exercising. And then I'd have to start all over again, which is really discouraging sometimes, but I'm like, okay, I got to try again. And so each time I would try again, I would start to gain more confidence in myself and I would start to gain more confidence in the tool as it applied to me living well. And it was just a gradual progression. And then the other thing for me, when I first was diagnosed for the first, uh, probably at least 10 years, I did not want to do counseling. I went a couple of times under duress, like my parents insisted that I do it, but I did not want to do it. Part of it was because I had grown up hearing my grandmother who I didn't, you know, I didn't know she had a chemical imbalance, but she was always saying, my therapist said this. And my therapist said that. And I'm like, that is never going to be me. I am never going to have somebody tell me what to think. I had this huge aversion to it. Then I finally started agreeing to go to counseling. I would do it when I was in crisis. So when there was a problem happening, I would go to counseling. And once the problem was abated, or once I had solved that issue at that moment, I'd stop. And starting counseling is a really typical process because you have to kind of rehash everything. It's a really emotionally taxing experience. And so then I would need to go to counseling again, but I wouldn't want to do it because I wouldn't want to have to go through that process again. So I put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, a couple of years ago, I realized I needed to go to counseling to prevent the crisis in the first place. Like I needed to go to counseling and just keep working until I had figured everything out. You know, I needed to, I needed help identifying on unhealthy thought behavior patterns. I needed help identifying trauma that I needed to heal. I needed help with boundaries big time. And so I just decided I'm going to go to counseling and I'm just going to keep going until there's nothing left to talk about. It has been a, a life-changing experience for me. Just at the end of last year, finally addressed the trauma from my first marriage. I had not talked to anybody about most of it. I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I wanted it gone. I didn't want it to be part of my identity. I didn't ever want to talk about what I'd been through. And so I just buried it. It came up in a marriage counseling session. And I thought, how is that still impacting me? Like that's over. I, I'm, I should be over that. When I realized that it was impacting my marriage still, I thought I have got to work through that. And so I, I went through the process and it was hard. My therapist used a therapy technique called EMDR. The way that I've had it described to me is that you broke a bone and it healed wrong. And so you have to re-break the bone and reset it. And it can be, you know, depending on the trauma, it can be a really challenging thing to go through. Um, and it lasted for a couple of months and it was, it was really hard, but when it was over, it was amazing to me to see how many things that I had been struggling with in my life 
or I was struggling with because of this unhealed trauma. And it was just gone. Like all of these problems that I had been struggling with were healed. <laughs> and I just thought, hey, why didn't I do that sooner? You know, I just thought I'd been suffering for all these years because of this. And I, if I had known, I would have done it a lot sooner. Oh, wow. And that, that's really amazing to hear too, because I've had a few guests on that have mentioned that EMDR has really helped them with their trauma as well. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that, that it helped you as well. Ultimately it's, it, you know, that my, my self-care routine every day, I go to bed early. It's really important to get good sleep. And for years I couldn't, once I got the supplements dialed in for myself, um, I was finally able to sleep through the night you know, I don't like to go to bed late. I go to bed usually between nine and 10 o'clock and I'll get up between five and five 30 in the morning. And I get up early because I want to get my self-care routine done before my children get up for the day, because it's really important for me to do my part to get myself balanced at the beginning of the day. So I'll get up and I'll either exercise. I, I love to run. I'll run and my running is not intense. It's just, you know, a 30 minute run. That's pretty low, you know, just kind of a cardiovascular type pace. And I do yoga and I practice mindfulness and I pray. And so those are the things that I do every day at the beginning of the day to give myself what I need to start it off. And I'm very consistent with taking my supplements. I go to counseling. I'm only going to counseling once every two weeks now, but I just do it to kind of, I don't see a psychiatrist anymore. And so I feel like it's really important for me to have somebody that I'm checking in with just to make sure I've got a lifeline to a professional. If, if something starts to go wrong, you know, Oh, absolutely. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing all of this. This has been absolutely amazing. Do you have any final words of wisdom or advice for somebody that is struggling with either their mental health or bipolar disorder in particular? I think the thing that's most important is recognizing that there is hope and that there is help there. You know, you can live a balanced, healthy, productive life with bipolar disorder. And there are a lot more resources now than there were when I was first starting to deal with this, you know, over 20 years ago. And it's really important to have good support. And so if you don't have a supportive family, you know, seeking a good counselor, a good therapist is really important. Um, if they have good support groups, you know, I didn't want to do that when I was younger, but I recognize the value in that now, you know, that having a good support group, if they have support groups in your area, I started an online Facebook group for moms with bipolar disorder who are trying to live well with it because I, I found that a lot of the online groups were very negative. It was actually more traumatizing to be in the group than helpful. And so I decided to start a group to try and create a, a safe place for people to be encouraged and recognize that you can live well with this. So there's a lot of hope. That's one of the reasons why I'm trying to share everything that I've learned so that people can kind of see the map to wellness and see how to learn how to live well uh, so that they don't they don't just suffer unnecessarily. Oh, yes. I mean, I so appreciate you coming on. It's so, so important. And I think that you speaking about your story and your journey to wellness is just invaluable. So I really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And can you tell everybody where to find you? My upside of down is my website. And it's also my name on Instagram. So it's my upside of down, just as it sounds. Dot com is my website. And then that's my name on Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. And everyone, I'm going to put all those links in the show notes, Michelle. Thank you so much again. Thank you. 
everyone. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I really hope that it was valuable and helpful to you. Isn't Michelle absolutely amazing? After we stopped recording, I told her that I loved hearing her talk and I wish she would do like a TED talk or something. Can't you picture her being on stage teaching about mental health and sharing her journey? absolutely amazing she's so inspirational like I said all of her links are in the show notes so make sure you go check her out Michelle thank you so much I really appreciate you sharing your story you are an inspiration to us all there will not be an episode posted next week so join me in two weeks for an interview with another incredible guest I hope you have a great two weeks and I will talk to you then (laughs) 